Well, Merry Christmas. The season does continue, 12 whole days right up into the Epiphany. As we come to this, our first Sunday after Christmas, we get another story that's associated with the infancy narrative. Now, he's not a baby anymore. This story we get from Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 51, is the only story we get in canonical scripture that covers the time period between his infancy and his full adult ministry. We get Jesus as a 12-year-old, Jesus as a preteen. In a Jewish world, Jesus as almost a man. For at 13 years of age, he would have become a fully grown man in the eyes of his parents and the community. And this story that Luke shares with us, this story of Jesus, this strange story of Jesus getting lost at Passover, which, by the way, is a bit of an encouragement, you know, for all parents. You know, we all have our foibles and our faults and moments we regret as parents. But, you know, Mary and Joseph alone, you know, lost the Son of God. We have never lost the Son of God at Passover as parents. So feel, feel encouraged this morning as parents. But the question we need to ask of this story is why did Luke include this story? I mean, as we all know, Luke, the historian, right, as the beginning of his gospel writes, he, he researched everything carefully from the beginning, right, eyewitness accounts, and writing from the overflow of the stories and the eyewitness accounts, why did this story make it into Luke's gospel? Not just because it's historical and that it happened, but because it was for a reason, the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to put this story in. Why? Well, there's many reasons, but the one I want to look at this morning is the fact that Luke includes this story to show us all as disciples that Jesus is going to constantly, regularly astonish us. That being astonished at Jesus is not something that happens just early on in your life as a Christian, but this is something that will happen again and again. Everybody who comes into contact with Jesus is astonished by Jesus, is what Luke wants us to know. Those who don't know him and meet him for the first time, astonished. But even the people that know him the best, Mary and Joseph, are astonished by Jesus in this story. Luke wants us to realize that this is the posture and the life of a disciple, that we are consistently and regularly going to be astonished by Jesus. And that word astonished, verse 48, when they find him after three days, verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished, it says. The word astonished has in its Greek root the idea of being struck. Just so we're clear, astonished doesn't necessarily mean a, wow, that's amazing, sense of astonishment. Astonishment here includes a sense of being struck, thrown off balance, being hit by a reality. They're unsettled by what they find in Jesus. They're disturbed by what they find in Jesus. This is what astonishment is. We experience astonishment all the time of this nature. I was astonished in an unsettled, disturbed way over the Christmas holidays that only of my four daughters, only my 10-year-old wanted to go to Star Wars with me. <laughs> only my 10-year-old. I, I, was, I was astonished. I said, are these my children? 
But then when I came home from the movie, I found out why. Because they assumed there'd only be sort of dad taking them up for one movie at Christmas. They said, dad, if you want to take us, this is the 17-year-old, 15-year-old, and the 12-year-old saying, if you want to take us to a movie, we want to go see Little Women because Timothy Chalamet is in it. And I was now astonished. I thought, my word, <laughs> Timothy Chalamet. And that's so why I, I responded back. I said, well, you know, just for the record, I played Timothy Chalamet's role. I played Laurie in Little Women, the musical. And they didn't care. <laughs> astonished at my children. We as parents can be astonished with our children on a regular basis. Mary and Joseph are astonished at Jesus. But they're astonished at Jesus in a unique way. Because what Luke shows us here is that whether you're very, very close to Jesus, his own parents, a disciple, someone who's walked with Jesus for a long time, or whether you're new to Jesus, just experiencing him perhaps for the first time, you are going to be astonished by what you find. Luke outlines in this short story three things that are astonishing. First, that we are astonished at his content, the content of his teaching. The things Jesus says, the things Jesus teach are astonishing. They're unsettling. They're at times disturbing. But they're also, that we're, it's also true that we're going to be astonished, not just at his content, but at his claims. The things he claims about himself. The things he even says here about his relationship with God the Father, this will astonish us. We will be unsettled and even at times disturbed by the claims Jesus makes of himself. But not just his content and not just his claims. But Luke wants us to know that we will regularly be astonished, unsettled, disturbed, full of wonder and awe. Not just at his content, not just at his claims, but at his cross. At the cross which stands before this man, Jesus, even in this story of him as a 12-year-old, the cross is already here. See, first, Luke wants us to know that we're going to be astonished again and again throughout our lives by his content. Verse 46 and 47 after three days, Mary and Joseph found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Jesus is 12 years old in the temple, sitting with the smartest men in Israel. And they're amazed at his wisdom, his questions, his answers, the way he handles Torah, the way he handles the prophets and the writings. See, the content of Jesus' teaching is going to again and again get a response from the crowds. Astonishment or anger. Right? Jesus' content always stirs something up. People stand again and again amazed at what Jesus is saying. And the problem we have is that we've been living for 2,000 years in a very Christianized Western world. And so we don't find the teachings of Jesus that crazy and controversial anymore. They're equally as difficult to follow, but we're used to them. You know, for example, you know, we, we hear about turning the other cheek. 
But can you imagine hearing that in the first century? Now, fear not. As the West gets more and more secularized, more and more people are approaching Jesus and his teachings with a fresh set of lenses, and it's just as offensive now as it was in the first century. I mean, it's not just those who don't know Jesus and are offended by his teachings and astonished by his teachings, but it's also us who know him really well. Isn't it true? I mean, we we can know Jesus really well. We can really know what the Bible says, what he teaches us, and we're still astonished by it. We're still unsettled by it. We're still a bit disturbed by his teachings. Again, turn the other cheek, right? Think of that example, right? I would say that whoever are Christians in the room, we would have a problem saying, yes, that is the way to live your life. That's Jesus' teaching, turn the other cheek. But then it comes to marriage. I mean, we live this out in our marriages. We're, we're, in, we're married. We live with a person who knows us and loves us, who's committed to us, and, and, we, and we fight. We get into arguments. We get into disagreements. And sometimes they can get a little bit ugly. Right? And so there'll be moments when we struggle with that. You know, I, I, I'm, I've been in those moments. It's a rare occasion, right, where I've done something really stupid. Not that rare at all. And Monica will be upset. We'll be upset with each other and, and, and we'll be going back and forth and then she'll, you know, it'll escalate and she'll, you know, throw a zinger at me that I'm, I'm sure I completely, you know, have earned. But she'll throw a zinger at me and then I'll, I'll have that, that voice of Jesus in my head that'll say, turn the other cheek. Don't retaliate. And so I'll actually for a moment, this broken sinner for a moment will hold my tongue. I'll say nothing. But here's the problem. Everything starts to change. Like the minute I actually start living Jesus' teaching, it's amazing how the whole situation starts to change. But I can't keep my mouth shut. Within one minute, I have to then say, did you notice I didn't retaliate? Look at me turning the other cheek, which never has the effect I intend. We struggle with the content of what Jesus says. If we take it seriously, this is hard stuff. But it's true. I think of that moment in John chapter 6 when Jesus is, is giving the bread of life discourse where he starts talking about how his disciples have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. He's, he's preparing them for the understanding of the cross and understanding Eucharist and what it means to remember him. But it's really hard to listen to the content of Jesus. And it says in John 6 verse 66 that at that time some of his disciples stopped following him. Disciples, committed believers, stopped following him. So offended by his content. Jesus turns and sees the 12 there and says, somewhat surprised, have you not gone away as well? And Peter's response says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. See, what Peter isn't saying is, oh, Lord, we love everything you say. No, Peter, again and again, is going to struggle like every other disciple. But he's saying, Lord, we struggle with this. But at the end of the day, we know that this is truth. As hard as it is, we are astonished by everything that comes out of your mouth. But we believe it to be true and life. See, Jesus has this tendency to always bring everything back to himself. Every truth he reveals always ends up being centered back on himself. He's not some philosopher laying out an ideology or a philosophy that's abstract or separate. He's always bringing it back to himself. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Everything about the content 
of Jesus ends up coming back to center on himself. And this is why we find his content so astonishing. But Luke wants us to know that it's not just his content of his teaching that we are going to be astonished by again and again. But it's also the claims that he makes. Again, that claim that everything centered on himself. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. People bring so many different opinions about who they think Jesus is, don't we? We live in a world more and more. As we get more secularized, everyone's got different opinions about who Jesus is. It's kind of like the three boys after Christmas. You know, they're, they're discussing what they did on the 25th of December. What did you do on the 25th? Well, the first boy, who's a Roman Catholic, says, well, on Christmas morning, we got together and gathered, you know, with presents, opened those presents, gathered around the tree and sang Ave Maria. Well, the second boy is a Protestant, and he says, well, you know, what we did on Christmas Day is we gathered around the presents and, and got around the tree and sang Silent Night. And the third boy, who's an atheist and whose father happens to be a shopkeeper, says, well, on December 25th, we gather around and my dad dumps out a bucket full of money he made from the Roman Catholics and the Protestants, and we sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. who do you say that I am? Jesus asks his disciples. The claims that this man makes about himself are astonishing or unsettling, are disturbing. Verse 49, Mary and Joseph are astonished at Jesus when they're trying to reprimand him. Mary says, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Verse 49, And Jesus said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, Jesus isn't being a precocious 12-year-old here. He's being honest. He's being real. My father's house. And again, we've been steeped in 2,000 years of this Christmas story in such a way that we're not shocked. Oh, Jesus calls God his father. And of course he does. He's the son of God. But understand this, that nowhere in Hebrew literature does any one person ever refer to the father, God, as father. In all of Hebrew literature, the only time that God is ever referred to as a father is only on those rare cases where they're talking about him being the father over a nation of people. Never one person. Abraham doesn't say it. Isaac, Jacob, Moses never say God is my father. It's familial. It's personal. It's astonishing that Jesus can claim to be the unique son of God. This is, of course, why Jesus ultimately gets himself killed. He's that astonishing. He gets himself killed. Because it's that unsettling. It's that disturbing. In John chapter 5, after he's healing one man on the Sabbath day, we read this in verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The claim Jesus makes again and again and again in the Gospels 
The claim that the whole of scripture from Genesis to Revelation makes about him again and again and again is the claim that the one who was with God, who was God, through whom all things were created, the Son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. That he is the Son of the Father, the only begotten Son of God. And we must grapple with this claim he makes. And if we look at it haphazardly or casually and say, oh yeah, he's the Son of God, then we have not fully embraced what it means about this claim. He's the Son of God. See, our astonishment is less about some sort of existential astonishment of, oh, wow, there, there's a, there, there could be a son of God. No, it's more of a relational astonishment. Okay, if there is a son of God and he's come in the flesh among us, what does that mean for my relationship with him? What will it mean for me to interact with such a one through whom the world was made and has come to live with us? We must grapple with astonishment again and again at the claim Jesus makes about who he is. C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia has Lucy at one point in the, in the final book describing the, the linkage between Narnia and our own world where she says this. She says, in our world too, there was once a stable that held something larger than the whole world. In our world too, a stable once held something bigger than the whole world. This is the claim that Jesus is making about himself. And this is the one that wants to come into your life and my life. And we should and we will again and again respond with Astonishment, wonder, unsettledness. What will it mean for this one to come into my life? But not only does Luke want us to know that we will constantly and consistently again and again be astonished by Jesus' content and by Jesus' claims, but that we will be astonished most, most, most profoundly. Astonished by his cross. Verse 51, it almost seems like a throwaway line at the very end of this, where it says, and he went down with him. This is after they find him. They reprimand him. It talks about God being his father. Astonishment. It says, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And it's not a throwaway line. The whole gospel is in this line. This one of whom the scribes were astonished at his content of his teaching, this one who we are astonished at the claims of who he says he is, the eternal son of God, comes with Mary and Joseph and goes back down to Nazareth as he had for those first 12 years and now beyond submitting to them. This 12-year-old that is older than creation itself submits himself to these mere mortals out of obedience to the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother. Jesus submits himself and is a sign of his entire life and ministry. 
placing himself beneath those he made, placing himself at the bottom for the sake of saving all of us. His whole life is a life of submission. As Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says, this 12-year-old now grown says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He submits himself. As Philippians chapter 2 says, that he did not equate equality with God as something to be grasped, but instead humbled himself, taking the form of a servant and being found in the form of human likeness, became a servant, even obedient to death on a cross. Submission. See, Luke has actually put a little sign right in the story here that points us to the cross. I mean, Luke's beginning his gospel, and he wants to give us an indication of what's coming at the end. Not only as we read this gospel of Jesus will we be astonished at his content and at the claims he makes, but we will stand amazed and astonished at his cross. And he puts the cross right here. Look, verse 41. This whole story, this 12-year-old story of Jesus, verse 41 says, takes place in the Passover. And then verse 46 says, after they lose him, they find Jesus again on the third day. Luke is doing this on purpose to indicate from the very beginning that when this 12-year-old grows up to be a man, when he's 33 years old, he will come again to Jerusalem on the Passover, but this time to be the Passover. And as he bears our sins, our brokenness, our evil in himself, dying the death we should have died, the disciples will effectively lose him. But after three days, they'll find him again, risen from the dead, defeating sin and death. Luke is putting this right at the beginning to say, the thing that you need to be astonished by is not just his content, as amazing as it is. Astonished not just at the claims to divinity, as amazing as they are, but be astonished that the Son of God has come to die on a cross for you and me. That's what we will stand amazed at again and again, our entire life as disciples. The cross must astonish us, must unsettle us, must disturb us, must cause us to wonder and awe because it tells us again and again two realities, that I am a great sinner and God is a great savior. Those are the words of John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace near the end of his life. He said these words, he says, though my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. This is why we come to church. We come to church week after week to gather as a body because this astonishment that we find at the content of Jesus and the claims of Jesus and the cross of Jesus. These are all things that, yes, we can experience in our own daily devotions, in our own Bible reading, in our own conversations, in our own meditations and reflections. But these astonishments that we'll find again and again, we will, 
freshly be astonished again and again at his content and his claims and his cross, most especially when we gather on his day, the Lord's day, to hear word and receive the sacrament. In word and sacrament as the community, we most clearly and most profoundly on a weekly basis are again brought to that place of utter astonishment at the content and the claims and most especially the cross of Jesus Christ for us. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? This astonishment is the posture and the life of a disciple. And here's why. Because Mary shows us at the very end how all of that astonishment can turn into something beautiful in a disciple's life. Verse 51, again, it seems like a little throwaway line. Mary treasured all these things in her heart. She treasured all these things. Mary and Joseph, they were astonished as we are. They were astonished at their son. And what did they do with their astonishment? Did they push it away? Did they dispel it? Did they say, I don't want any mystery in my life. I want God in a very carefully defined box that I can understand and contain and control. No, Mary treasured these things. And treasured means to keep in view. She constantly kept in view these things about her son that astonished her. She rewound them and played the tape over again and again. She meditated on all the ways that her son's content and claims, and yes, finally she would see herself, the cross. And she would meditate on all of this of her son that has astonished her. And what happened? Verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, in the favor with God and man. Unless we misunderstand that verse, it doesn't mean that Jesus was lacking in wisdom and had to find some more. It means that as Mary treasured all this astonishment about her son, that Jesus increased in her life. Jesus was more glorified and bigger and more majestic and more profound and more beautiful in her life as she treasured her astonishments, as she sat there again playing over this mode of being so astonished at her son, Jesus increased. He became bigger. He became greater in her eyes. Fair as the sunshine, fairer still the moonlight and all the twinkling starry host, Jesus shines brighter Jesus shines purer than all the angels heaven can boast. Mary knew this more and more because she treasured all of this astonishment. We as disciples will know this more and more as we treasure our astonishment. We find again and again as we behold him. In 2020, will you treasure the astonishment that God places before you about his son? Will you come regularly through word and sacrament to be blown away week after week to be astonished at Jesus, his content that will constantly amaze you and yet is the best thing you could ever seek to model your life after? His claims that will constantly astonish you 
This one has come into my life, and yet it is true. And his cross, most especially as we come to this table, will astonish you. That though I was weak, he came and made me strong by becoming weak himself for me. And as we treasure all these things in our heart, as 2020 is a year of treasuring our astonishment in Jesus, 2020 will be a year of Jesus increasing in our eyes, increasing in our lives, increasing in beauty before us. And as we do that, our lives will be changed. Our families' lives will be changed. Our marriages will be changed. Our businesses will be changed. Our communities will be changed. And yes, this is how our world will be changed in 2020. Treasure the astonishment that he will put before you, O disciple, each and every time you gather. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.